an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with global dining access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have. Never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, powered by FoxBet. NFL Week 5, the topic for discussion today. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only, Payne Insider. Little Mr. Testaverde action going on early this morning. That was quick. My feeling is, when our producer gets this, he's not going to hear the whole welcome. Just my feeling here. Yep. Do you want me to drag it out for effect here so we should go welcome in? And I should just... At your vibe. Elongate. At your vibe, usually. You know what? It, it's the time of the season where the calendar hits October, and I know everyone's still brimming with enthusiasm for football. But from like week five to week nine, this is where you just have to power through some of that adversity. Your body's a little banged up. The vocal cords don't quite feel the same. So you just got to keep muscling through the uh, potential obstacles and barriers that are in your way. Yeah, it was the first night I didn't get normal sleep. So here we are. I'm shocked that uh, that you're able to join us today. I figured you'd be busy maybe prepping your Halloween costume. What are you going with this year? You know what? I got to figure all that stuff out because there's a couple Halloween parties on the docket. Ooh. Not quite sure if I'm going to actually not quite sure if I'm actually going to travel. We know football season makes things a little bit difficult. Um, so have to have to work through that. Uh, I lend it to the girlfriend. She figures some of that stuff out and I either sign off or go. Nope, that's not going to happen. I'm sure the party host is eagerly awaiting your RSVP. There are multiple party hosts <laughs> eagerly awaiting, but they've known for a while that when it comes to the fall, expectations of my my arrival and showing my face typically uh, err on the side of being an underdog. But we'll have plenty. <laughs> okay. We'll have we'll have plenty of time for Halloween discussion. Uh, we have a winner to announce in the bet the board football five k free roll, whatever the hell we're calling it these days. And I have a feeling, pain you have that information in your mind. <laughs> uh, that's actually pretty funny. Uh, and no one heard the pre pre show talk. That's actually good from you. Um, yes, not to butcher this guy's podcast. limelight. Two, two minutes in, I've peeked into the podcast. There you go. Not to butcher this guy's limelight. Kyle Wilson eleven is the uh, week four bet the board five k NFL contest winner. Five and zero, oh, only guy to guess the exact score of Monday Night Football perfectly. So he is the the week four winner. 
Bet the board swag pack and Visa gift card on the way. Kyle Wilson. Absolutely incredible that that's what it takes to win our contest these days. Not only do you have to go 5-0 and against the spread, but you damn well better hit the over-under on Monday Night Football exactly on the button to ensure that swag pack. So congratulations, Kyle. Appreciate everybody that continues to put their picks in weekly and put up uh, staggering results. Hopefully you guys are actually betting some of these games yourselves and lining your pockets as a result. But five big games, as always, paying the tradition around these parts, highlighted by the Thursday Night Football game between the Rams and Seahawks, which we'll get to later. But let's kick things off in the Steel City, where it's Baltimore, a road favorite, three, three and a half point favorite, depending on what you want to call it at Fox Bet right now. Total on the game sits at 45. And I guess the first question I have to ask you, can we actually take anything away from the Steelers drubbing of the Bengals on Monday Night Football? <laughs> um, you want me to start the show with piss and vinegar? A- I thought that was a fair question. I had to throw it out there because I was hoping we might get a Mike Tomlin rant. Okay. So (laughs) this isn't like we don't pre-plan this stuff. We don't really look at each other's notes. We don't really speak about this stuff until we speak about it, right? I guess the less time we have to talk, the better. (laughs) No shit. The entire world feels that way about the two of us. So... Yeah. Okay, great win Monday night. You know, Mason Rudolph goes 24 for 28, two touchdowns, no picks. I I still don't have a clue what this Pittsburgh offense is, right? And it's like, after what I saw Monday, still the same questions and concerns. The game plan, the execution was was really bizarre to me. Like, rather than take the added time last week at home playing on Monday, right, to figure out, what Rudolph likes best, what he's most comfortable with, adding new things to the playbook that suit Rudolph, um, and to prepare him for the next 12 games, Pittsburgh spent their time drawing up Wildcats and having running backs throw passes, right? And at like 24 to 3, when the game's already decided, Jalen Samuels is in the Wildcat throwing passes when Mason Rudolph probably could be working on things and getting valuable reps. So like, nothing this coaching staff does makes sense. And you see Mike Tomlin on the sidelines. He's like loving life and laughing and, you know, about the execution of the Wildcat. It's like, dude, you're beating the 0-4 Bengals who have a head coach that was unemployed two years ago and McVay made him an assistant wide receivers coach. You're 1-3, like have some self-awareness. So good win. You needed it. I, I just, as good as Mason Rudolph was, we didn't really get anything from him that can like move forward, I don't believe. What, you mean completing 15 to 28 passes to running backs and having 3.3 completed air yards per attempt, being the second fewest among any quarterback who's thrown at least 30 passes, doesn't lead you to believe that he's the heir apparent and the successor right out of the gates to Big Ben? I don't know if he's had the opportunity to try. So, you know, you kind of alluded to this. 13 of Rudolph's 28 pass attempts were thrown behind the line of scrimmage. 20 of 28 pass attempts behind the line or within five yards of the line of scrimmage. And I think why we're, you know, bringing this up is because the opponent in Baltimore is currently having issues defensively, especially against the pass, right? Baltimore's 25th in defensive efficiency, 24th in explosive pass defense. And, you know, with the injuries in in the secondary, Baltimore's having just like an incredibly difficult time with three wide receiver sets. So, you know, you hope Rudolph can take advantage. Let's see if the game plan allows him to take advantage. I I sure would have liked to have seen him working on stuff rather than watching Jalen Samuels throw ducks all over the park. So, (laughs) you know, the, the key here, I think, is Baltimore's obviously somehow has to find a way to get pressure on Rudolph when he drops back. That's the key here. 
And there is just this massive dichotomy right now. Rudolph is third in the NFL with a 129 passer rating when throwing from a clean pocket. 32 passer rating when pressured. So it is imperative that you send some heat. It's imperative that you get home with four or five because I think that's pretty big. I do believe we're going to see a little more energy, probably a little more effort defensively for Baltimore. I know Earl Thomas called Brandon Williams out for missing last week. And then Earl Thomas just decided not to chase down Nick Chubb for whatever reason. So there was a little spat in the training room after the game. Didn't go overly well. Apparently, other players and coaches had to break the two of those guys up. Without Pro Bowler Brandon Williams kind of plugging the interior of that Ravens defense, Cleveland rushed for like 6.7 a carry, had a 52% success rate, five explosive runs and four rushing touchdowns. Safe to say that he was he was missed last week. I think all signs point to him being back and playing from from reading between the lines and all the tea leaves. Um, I haven't touched this game yet, but a lot of the pure math guys uh, nibbled a little bit of the dog early here. You know what's wild about this? And I was floored. I mean, we clearly watch these games and we dig into the numbers. And sometimes it doesn't dawn on you what you're seeing unfold in real time. And to know that the Ravens are dead last in the league, allowing seven yards per play, worse than the Dolphins. I know it's uh, decimals here or there. Still pretty staggering. And over, you mentioned over the last two games, they're allowing 69% completions to opposing quarterbacks, 350 passing yards per game and four touchdowns. Not exactly a recipe for success. Although when we look at the Steelers and Mason Rudolph, I'm not actually sure what the Steelers have in this receiving core. Juju Smith-Schuster, a non-factor against the Bengals secondary. Not exactly a great look when he has three catches for 15 yards. Do you, uh, do you the have the si- numbers on what Baltimore's allowing to running backs? Because that might actually be uh, in play here. Do you have, well, do you have the mean, completion? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm messing with it. <laughs> messing with it. They, uh, well, yeah, hey, you know what? I mean, the, the way Cleveland was able to do whatever they wanted when they wanted in that game, even going back to their Baltimore's win against Arizona back in week two, the Cardinals moved the ball exceptionally yes. well between the 20s and just bogged down in the red zone kicking field goals because that team can't block for anybody. But uh, on the other side of the ball, I mean, the Baltimore offense clearly, I mean, has a lot of pressure placed on them, but they put up yards and chunks and points in what I would call garbage time against Cleveland. Now, I know Lamar Jackson's numbers, at least on the surface, look good. A passer rating just under 110. He's fifth in the league in that department among all qualified quarterbacks. Completion percentage approaching 60. Has turned the ball over a couple of times. But when you look at what the Steelers can do, 31 quarterback hits, good enough for third in the league. Can the Ravens run the ball successfully enough to Lamar to have the ability to pick them apart passing, uh, knowing this is going to be his first career start at Heinz Field? I think we're going to find out a lot about Lamar and the Ravens offense this week, right? And, you know, without question, things haven't looked as good the last two games against better competition. But as a whole, schedule adjusted, the Ravens still have the third most efficient offense right now. It's clear that Lamar has improved as a passer, but there's obviously still a long ways to go. I think the key for the Ravens offense is is being in a position to throw the ball with deception, right? Being able to throw from two tight end sets, being able to throw when defenses don't know if it's run or pass. And so to me, Lamar isn't good enough yet consistently throwing the ball in these known passing situations, right? Having him constantly line up in the shotgun with three and four wides, you know, read defenses pre and post snap, and then consistently deliver accurate balls is something he's improved on, but isn't great at yet. So it's really important that Baltimore keeps the game close. So there is some deception with their formations to assist Lamar, right? I think that's, that's huge. Being able to use play action is a bonus, right? Right now, Lamar is the sixth best passer rating 
when using play action. Uh, it's within five points of Mahomes. It's tough to line up with two tight ends and use play action when you're trailing the Chiefs by 17 in the second half or down to the Browns by 22 at home. So it's important that this game stays close. You would think that's probably going to be the case, right? When you look at the spread, when you look at the total, that this is probably a game that's that's close. Um, so that's a positive, I think, for Baltimore's offense and Lamar Jackson. When I look at Pittsburgh's defense, all the data points included, they're still wildly disappointing, right? They're they're below average in efficiency despite facing an average schedule of offenses. Obviously, you know, the data point I think everyone remembers is the one they saw last 72 hours ago against the Bengals because it's the freshest on people's minds. And the reason I couldn't join the other pros on that game is all the advantages that the Bengals had couldn't be exploited if Dalton wasn't kept upright. And, and Pittsburgh's front seven had 23 pressures and 11 hurries on Monday night. So the D-line was actually able to eat after some depressed numbers, right? They, they faced Alito lines in New England and San Francisco. When you look at Baltimore's O-line, they're number two in adjusted line yards. Jackson's only been pressured 32% of his dropbacks. Some of those are on him running himself into sacks and things of that nature, running himself into pressures. So this isn't the Bengals O-line. So it's a much tougher task for the Steelers defense. I think we see the ability to run the ball a little bit here as well. Um, the one matchup that's that's probably pretty vital, it's going to determine the success of Baltimore's offense or Pittsburgh's defense is 43% of Lamar Jackson's completed passes have gone to tight ends. Pittsburgh hasn't allowed a, uh, you know, a bunch of receptions to tight ends, but when they have, when tight ends have been targeted, the Steelers defense is allowing a 138 passer rating and a 63% success rate to tight ends. So it, it's interesting here. Pittsburgh has to try to take Andrews and the other tight ends away from Lamar. If they can, they might have a shot here. We'll have to see if uh, we get a little revenge on the mind of Hollywood Brown trying to atone for the way his cousin was treated as he uh, heads into Pittsburgh as a member of the Baltimore Ravens. couple quick trends on this game before we move forward. Uh, when you look, and I know it hasn't happened all that often, the Steelers have actually been great as a home underdog during the Mike Tomlin era. Going back to 2007, they've covered as a home dog 73% of the time. The road team has had some tremendous success over the last handful of meetings here as well where it matters most. And when you look at Baltimore in general, they've actually been a pretty good proposition the last 16 games away from home going 11 and 5 against the number from the steel city pain we go to gotham city where it's the minnesota vikings a five-point favorite total on the game 43 and a half at fox bet as they take on the now two and two new york giants and found this interesting uh digging into it and it's probably Semi-interesting, but irrelevant all at the same time. Teams to start the season 3-2 and two since 1990 have averaged a 9-7 and seven record and made the playoffs 50% of the time. Teams to start 2-3 and three in that span have averaged a 7-9 and nine record and only made the postseason 22% of the time. Why do I say that? We have a pair of 2-2 two and two teams that have to be coming into this game with different levels of optimism in terms of what their future holds. Yeah, and Mike Zimmer poo-pooed all over that. He's, he came out this week and said, hey, we started 2-2 two and two and won 13 games. We started 5-0 and oh and won 8. So take that for your metrics and numbers, says Mike Zimmer. <laughs> um, when I look at, I think the big thing, and I know we didn't talk about it Monday and after the show, I was like, man, we didn't really speak about the Vikings offense against the Bears and how anemic it was. I, we don't have to rehash it. I think we all get it. it was a horrific performance. At some point, I think players need to make some plays. We've been waiting for Cousins to do that. The numbers indicate when games are the biggest and the moments are the brightest, Cousins struggles. 
And, you know, many times it's knowing where the ball should go. Uh, Cousins doesn't always let plays develop. The ball is a hot potato at times, it looks like. And so we know what Cousins is. I'm not sure it's time to panic because we've seen him struggle against the um, uh, Chicago Bears defense before. It's not anything that's a surprise at this point. So I, I just don't know what we need to take away from that game. I think there's going to be opportunities against the Giants defense, right? When they face Josh Allen, Jameis Winston, a combination of Keenum and Haskins, it's not a great schedule of offenses so far. And the Giants are 24th in passing success rate defense. They're 28th in explosive pass defense. So, you know, I think there's going to be some opportunities here for the Minnesota offense. Certainly the the Giants are playing with more energy, a little more effort since Danny Dimes took over at quarterback. But there's just not a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball. The linebacker core is still beat up. Ogletree hasn't practiced yet. Um, so to me, it's, it's on this Vikings offense. I think they should have some success here. I want to see what the Vikings offensive line looks like. They need to protect Cousins a little bit more, right? I, I mean, we just know what Cousins is at this point. You have to help the guy out. So even in like the limited amount of throws that Cousins has had, he's still been pressured 48% of his dropbacks. So you got to keep him clean. Um, then it's waiting for Cousins to kind of see things develop right? Let things play out a little bit more. Don't treat the ball like a hot potato. Don't be afraid that you're going to be hit. Um, if he does, I think there's there's going to be some opportunities here to make some plays. We'll see if Diggs goes. I think that's probably the big question mark. He's, he's certainly important to the offense. He is their field stretcher. He's responsible for 41% of the offense's total air yards. Um, but I also think that Minnesota isn't going to change who they are. They knew what they wanted to be. They hired the guy to get them there in Stefanski, and this is what they are. And Minnesota's offensive line and the personnel is better as run blockers than they are as pass blockers. And so you look, Minnesota's offensive line, fourth and adjusted line yards. Delvin Cook has been fantastic, right? Eight-man boxes he's seen 28% of the time. That's seventh most. He's still averaging almost six yards a carry. So the world knows Minnesota wants to run it. I'm not sure the Giants are going to be able to stop it. So it'll be interesting to see if Minnesota gets back on track. But it's certainly been a weird vibe throughout the course of this week in that locker room on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, you can only imagine when your starting quarterback being paid a king's ransom is issuing public apologies to Adam Thielen, Stephon Diggs, as you mentioned, missing practice for personal reasons, implying that he wants to be traded. Lord only knows how things are going on that side of the ball. But I guess the other matchup to watch here, Payne, is, of course, the rookie quarterback in Daniel Jones, who becomes the first Giants quarterback to win each of his first two starts, going back to 1997 when Danny Cannell accomplished the feat. Uh, And what this group has looked like, Jones, 69% completion percentage, um, and put together some pretty compelling numbers thus far, but clearly this is a step up in class against the Vikings defense compared to going up against Tampa and that secondary uh, and what he encountered last week in the form of the Washington Redskins. This is the part of the game that intrigues me a little bit because it's going to be fun to watch Mike Zimmer's defense going up against his former offensive coordinator in Pat Shimmer's, uh, Pat Shermer's offense. So I, I, there's going to be some gamesmanship there. Both guys, I know, downplayed the situation this week and you know, to their point, everybody does know everybody's system already, right? Everyone can watch film and tape. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, I would think that there is going to be some change in some verbiage and language that'll be different this week. But aside from that, I don't know. It'll be fun to watch this. Now, 
as you alluded to, far and away Daniel Jones' toughest test that he's faced so far. Washington's pass defense is 29th in efficiency. The Buccaneers obviously look improved in the secondary, but they're kind of trending poorly. It's still bottom half of the league in passing efficiency defense and explosive pass defense. So this is a much tougher task. I think the key here is allowing Daniel Jones again to throw on early downs. If you remember, I mentioned this on the, shit, I think it was the NFC preview podcast a few months ago. Overall, the Vikings defense is still very good. But whether it's guys getting older on that side of the ball or Zimmer's message, you know, starting to get repetitive and lost a little bit, there are some areas of regression for Minnesota's defense. And on first down last year, Minnesota was horrible stopping the run. They were 30th in rushing success rate allowed. Through four games this season, the Vikings defense on first down is 30th in passing success rate defense. 36 of 57 first down passes against Minnesota have graded successful. So to me, it's it's about Shermer kind of putting Danny Dimes in these comfortable situations. And that means throwing on early downs because not only is it the most efficient time to throw, but it's the most efficient time to throw against the Vikings defense, right? Um, when you look a little bit at uh, some of the other aspects of Minnesota's defense, they have allowed 80% of tight end targets to be caught right? I know they have two interceptions on tight end targets, so the passer rating allowed is being skewed a little bit, but Minnesota's allowed uh, 78% completions, a 64% success rate, and they're giving up 62 yards a game to the tight end position. So again, early downs, let's see Danny Dimes throw it to Evan Ingram, get him involved here. Um, I think that's important. Uh, When Daniel Jones does drop back, need some help. Right, they've upgraded the offensive line, but so far he's been pressured on forty-nine percent of his dropbacks. Um, and then you have, when you look at Minnesota's defense, you got these two bookends: Daniel Hunter, Everson Griffin. Fifty-one combined pressures so far. Also, want to monitor. I think the Kevin Zeitler injury. He was part of the OBJ trade. Fantastic guard. Monitor that injury situation a little bit as the week progresses. It definitely seemed bizarre uh, referencing the Zeitler situation in terms of his availability and what that was going to look like. Uh, One last thing on this game, Payne, when we look at the total, are you surprised that we're seeing a total knowing this Giants defense and some of their shortcomings, some of the regression you alluded to for the Minnesota Vikings ticking down towards the key number of 43? So I'm not going to be on the total. I know the group that hit the under. I think it's a familiarity play. I think it's the Giants defense trending up a little bit the last few weeks. They're, you know, probably not paying attention to uh, the competition. But either way, we're just seeing more energy and effort from the Giants uh, on on defense. And certainly there's still question marks with Minnesota. I don't think they're going to change who they are. It's still going to be a run first team. And then you have the question mark with Diggs. Is it going to be out there or not? So um, when you start looking at some of these key numbers in that area of 45 and 44 and 43, sometimes you're grabbing a number and figuring out the rest later in the week. Makes an awful lot of sense. We know how important those numbers are uh, for those total players or some of the new listeners out there trying to go, wait a second, what do you mean key numbers? We understand the 3, 4, 6, 7, but 43, 44, and 45 amongst the most important numbers these days if you're looking to bet totals in the National Football League. On to America's Game of the Week. Uh, in theory, between the Packers and Cowboys, Payne, 
and it's Dallas, a three and a half point road favorite right now at Fox Bet. Total on this game sits at 46 and a half. The Cowboys, of course, suffered their first loss of the season last weekend against the New Orleans Saints, and it was actually the first time they'd lost a one possession game going all the way back to week seven of last year against the Redskins. They come into this contest off a season low in rushing yards versus the Saints and really lacked a lot of creativity. Uh, in, in my opinion, when it came to calling plays against that New Orleans defense. Green Bay, of course, extra time to prepare. You have to imagine Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers will have a few wrinkles in store for the Cowboys defense. We touched on this last Thursday, and I think we've harped on it multiple times throughout the season so far, but it bears repeating, and it's Green Bay's offense needs to figure out how to maintain its efficiency throughout the course of the game. And that's been a glaring issue. Once Matt LaFleur's script wears off, he hasn't shown the ability to, you know, react um, or adjust throughout the course of the game or any in-game situation, right? And we know passing really determines outcomes more than running. And I think when you have Aaron Rodgers, even more so, right? When I look at Green Bay's passing offense by quarter, these numbers are, are pretty staggering and they're worth, you know, discussing. First quarter with the script... Green Bay, 61% passing success rate. That's third in the NFL. Second quarter, defense starts to adjust a little bit. Green Bay, 46% passing success rate. That's 16th in the NFL. And then you get through halftime. Third quarter, the opponent is fully adjusted at the break. It doesn't appear as though LaFleur does, right? Green Bay, 28% passing success rate in the third quarter. That's 30th in the NFL. Fourth quarter, not much better, 35% passing success rate. That's 28th in the NFL. In the second half of these games, Green Bay just is doing nothing. And it's not just the pass that's been the issue. They're 24th in rushing success rate in the second half. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, they're winning these games, so they're not really throwing it. Well, they're not really running it well or efficiently either in the second half. So just like last week, I think it's important that, you know, Dallas keeps the game close early. Um, and now we know the Packers offense is a bit banged up a little bit, right? Devontae Adams dealing with the turf toe hasn't practiced yet this week. Something to monitor there. Um, what does concern me a little bit, and it's it's really weird I, for Dallas. Th- obviously, you got to keep keeping pressure on, on Rodgers. I think that's important in this game. Right. We outlined some of that a little bit last week with Rodgers under pressure through the four data points. Quarterbacks uh, that have played at least half their team's game so far. Rodgers is 24th and adjusted completion percentage went under pressure. But about this Dallas defense, it is wildly talented. Obviously, Dallas is three and one and didn't allow a touchdown on Sunday night. I am starting to get a little nervous, though, because some of these underlying metrics have not been great. And I can't figure out why Um, the Cowboys have played the second easiest schedule of opposing offenses in the NFL. They're just 15th in defensive efficiency. Dallas has played the third easiest schedule of passing offenses, third easiest schedule of run offenses. When I look at this right now, Dallas is 23rd in rushing success rate defense, 26th in passing success rate defense. It is a little bit better in the first half. That's what I wanted to check on because again, the first three weeks of the season, they're up a bunch. They're playing soft coverage. But again, even in the first half, sure, they're top 10 in rushing success rate defense, but they're in the bottom third in passing success rate defense in the first half. So wildly talented, holding teams out of the end zone, but down to down metrically, it's been a little bit disappointing so far, especially when you factor in the schedule for this Dallas defense. 
who clearly something's got to give between the Packers offense and their inefficiency, especially after the script and what you mentioned as it pertains to the Dallas Cowboys. Now on the other side of the ball pane, of course, the last time we saw the Green Bay Packers, it was the Jordan Howard and Miles Sanders show running wild against this Green Bay defense. We've seen them gashed for running totals, 176, 149, and 198 yards against. What I found interesting, and you spend a lot more time in personnel packages. I'm not going to claim to be an expert some of uh, the analysts uh, suggested that what philadelphia was able to do with two tight ends zach Ertz and dallas goddard created a lot of those running lanes that philadelphia had dallas doesn't have quite the same level of athlete in the sets blake jarwin and jason Witten can't replicate uh what philadelphia was able to do but when we look at this cowboys offensive line and there is a major injury that i'm sure you'll hit on do we think the cowboys can have success running down to down against this green bay defensive front they're gonna have to right and I think this side of the ball is probably, we can call it like chapter two on why it's vital the Cowboys keep this game close early. And it's so they can continue to use their ground game, right? Even with Sunday night's data point where like Zeke goes for 1.9 a carry uh, against the Saints, the Cowboys with that included have still been successful in 54% of their runs. They're the second most efficient ground game. That's the Achilles heel of the Packers defense. Dead last in the NFL. They're allowing 59% of runs to great successful. It's 11% worse than league average. So again, it's just so important that Dallas keeps the game close early so they can employ the ground and pound. If Green Bay can get out to a lead, then the strength of their defense, which is the pass rush, can actually be put on like display here, right? If you look at the Packers defense right now, 97 pressures in four games. They're sixth in adjusted sack rate. And so it's really important, especially when you look at the Cowboys online, which you alluded to, they're dealing with a bunch of injuries. Left tackle, Tyron Smith, high ankle sprain. Right tackle, Lael Collins. Uh, he's beat up a little bit. Even Zach Martin. He's been limited uh, by a bad back. So you can't allow Green Bay to be in a situation where you know their ends can pin their ears back and be pass rushers. So again, keeping this game close is vital on this side of the ball as well. Um, but it's really important to keep your eye on the offensive line injuries here for Dallas. What do you make of Dak Prescott so far this season? I mean, uh, you look at some of his numbers, and he hasn't dropped back to actually throw a pass more than four times in a single game this season. Most of his, most of the Cowboys passing attack predicated on play action, him running it out of the shotgun. Is there anything defensive coordinators can identify to make life a lot more difficult for Dak? Or with some of his struggles last weekend, the Cowboys' persistence and ignorance i'm trying to think of the right adjective to continue running on first down putting him in second and third and longs consistently so i like Dak prescott i think he's really trended upwards we talked in the off season about him being a much more efficient passer a much more accurate passer than i think the general public or recreational betters realize the national narrative i think is wrong a little bit on Dak. now is he a guy that's worth 40 million dollars a year absolutely not but I think he's perfect for this offense. I think he is a good fit. I like everything I've saw leading up to last week's game. Kellen Moore, partly responsible for the lack of imagination this offense had. Obviously, he was also down Michael Gallup. His, at, to this point in the season, was the best pass catcher that Dallas had, even with Amari Cooper. Cooper, I think, is fine health-wise. He claims to be fine health-wise, but there's probably still a little bit of a lingering injury there. So I'm fine with what I've seen from Dak Prescott. He remains to be accurate. I think he continues to be, you know, I think the glue to this team. I really do. I know it's all about the ground and pound, but he is a natural born leader. You hear him in the huddle, everyone rallies around the guy. So I don't mind him. He's not worth 40 million bucks, but 
I think he's completely <laughs> fine. Yeah, all of the metrics point to him being really good so far this season. And I think it was a tough game, a tough environment. It was a little bit of a different look there for the Saints defensively, and Kellen Moore let him down a little bit. One last thing on this game, Payne, when we look uh, at, at the numbers, we've seen it come off of keys of uh, three and a half, four, even seeing some three start to pop up. We've seen uh, the undertake a little bit of money as well. Uh, what do we make of the early market movement on this particular contest? I don't make much of it. I really don't. So, I mean, we're sitting here at three and a half. That's kind of where we lie. 47 is an important number in the totals market. So we're seeing that fluctuate a little bit coming under. I listen, we've, we've kind of broke this game down ad nauseum here. It's going to be vital. We know what each team needs to do at this point. Um, if Green Bay isn't successful early on in this game, you're going to have a tough time going over this number. Um, if Dallas is able to keep it close and continue the ground and pound, then this game's probably going to stay under a little bit, right? There's just a lot of variance to this game. It's not for me. I think it's the right number. I think there's too many injuries on both sides to kind of run out and play this game at this point, right? I, I don't really want the Packers if if Devontae's out, um, and I really want to see what this O-line situation looks like for Dallas. Now, seen a little bit of money come in on Green Bay from, from a couple guys. Uh, at three, there has been a different mindset. So for me, it's it's stay away. I don't really love this board in general. We look at uh, this game. It's interesting with the Packers' recent history. This is a franchise that we think about being elite with Aaron Rodgers, uh, but their last 11 games when they've played teams with a winning record, they've only compiled a 1-10 straight-up mark. So we'll see if Green Bay can go on the road and get a big win in this particular spot or if Dallas will erase the demons from that loss on Sunday Night Football against the New Orleans Saints. To Sunday Night Football, and it's one of the biggest numbers on the board this weekend. Kansas City, an 11-point home favorite, total in this game, 55 at Fox Bet as they welcome in the Indianapolis Colts. Of course, it's a revenge game from last year's postseason, a game the Chiefs won 31-13, where the Colts ran the football just 14 times because the game flow dictated as such. The Chiefs had tons of success, carrying it 33 times for 180 yards. And Kansas City, despite Patrick Mahomes not throwing a single touchdown pass last weekend in their win against Detroit, keeps one of the most impressive offensive feats in the NFL intact. They've now scored 25-plus points in 25 straight games. I ask you this, Payne, being the president and number one fan of Patrick Mahomes out there for his fan club, what can the Colts possibly do to keep this Chiefs offense at bay? I'm not really sure. And <laughs> I like brutal. I like brutal honesty. Yeah, you know, it's extremely important. And, I, and I've kind of mentioned this as we're starting to get to week five. Injuries are starting to pile up. And so there are three defensive injuries right now up the middle of this Colts defense. Darius Leonard, uh, he did have a light practice on Wednesday, so potentially a good sign that he could clear the concussion protocol, but we're not sure yet. Both safeties, Malik Hooker and, and Clayton Gathers, did not practice. It looks like they could be both long shots. And I think why it's important to monitor those three injuries right in the heart of your defense is obviously we know Kansas City's offense is potent. That's not a newsflash. But the things Andy Reid and Mahomes do to attack is is usually in the middle of the field, right? With their tight ends, with their running backs. Those those elements of Andy Reid's offense are next level. And so when you look at all the data points this season, the Colts defense has allowed 28 completions uh, on 34 tight end targets in three touchdowns for a 116 passer rating. Uh, so they haven't been good against tight ends. And now all of a sudden you're potentially without your middle linebacker and your two two safeties. 
using all the data points from the four games. The Colts defense has allowed 19 receptions on 25 targets to running backs. They've given up two touchdown passes to running backs, 120 passer rating to running backs. That's second worst in the NFL. So (laughs) this is the problem with this side of the ball for the Colts. And it's why we've seen this number tick out a little bit. I'm certainly not running to lay 11 here. But again, it's just when you look and you include all these data points, they factor in a little bit of gathers and and Leonard and Hooker who have played so far. Um, And it's against offenses that aren't as good as the Chiefs who are fantastic at using their tight ends and backs. So it's just it's so important to see those guys if they play. Honestly, nothing else really matters on this side of the ball. And if you remember, Todd, these two teams, as you alluded to, played in the uh, postseason last year. And I remember talking in that divisional round of the podcast, we kept saying, monitor the Malik Hooker situation, right? It's vital against the Chiefs. He didn't play in that game. Kelsey went for 108 yards on 10 targets with a 70% success rate, and six of his catches went for first downs. You look at the box score in this game, and I know Leonard and Gathers are fantastic, but they had 25 tackles because it's clear where the Chiefs want to attack. So <laughs> this is this is all that matters on this side of the ball. If those three guys are out, it is going to be extremely difficult for the Colts defense to do anything here. Well, scary proposition as well. You figure if there's a regression and Patrick Mahomes didn't score a touchdown yeah. or throw for a touchdown last weekend, means he's due to throw four or five this weekend to keep him on his torrid pace uh, as he'd love to get to 50. The other side of the ball, the Colts run game, which was a strength over the first two weeks in a near victory on the road against the Chargers and a road win against the Titans, has kind of struggled over the last two weeks. 160 total yards uh, after going over that number in each of the first two games I mentioned. Uh, Marlon Mack off to a good start in 2000. 19 has run the football for the fifth most yards in the league but dealing with some injuries as well can indianapolis run the ball can they do things offensively to put together long time consuming drives to keep kansas city out of rhythm uh and just basically shorten the game which i think becomes the only way that they'll have a puncher's chance you you have to right that's the shot here and i i think this is the side of the ball that's actually fun to talk about because we're not really sure what these two teams are, or these two units rather, you know, what are they? Where are they going to be moving forward? It's like, can the Colts continue their offensive output with Brissett? Um, are the improvements that we're seeing from the Chiefs defense real? And I think we'll find out more after this game, because right now I think the Colts, when you look at them offensively, it's still pretty good, right? Eighth in overall efficiency, top 12 in both rushing and passing efficiency. That's without T.Y. Hilton for two games uh, of the four data points that we have. But again, as you, you hit on this perfectly, this matchup, it's really important that Frank Reich offense just kind of controls, dictates the flow of the game with his offense. Continue to be aggressive, right? Passing on early downs, but you can do it successfully five, six, seven, eight yards a chunk, right? There's no need to be, you know, pace demons here. Allow your offensive line to kind of lean on the Chiefs defense. Uh, Even with the Chiefs defense going to this 4-3 and having Jones and Clark along that line who are both fantastic, KC's allowing 58% of runs to grade successful. The Chiefs are also 30th in explosive run defense. The, the, when we broke the game down last week, right, the Lions game plan and what they wanted to do was exactly the Achilles heel of the Chiefs. And so what do you know, right? Detroit 5.3 a carry, 57% success rate last week, ripped off six explosive runs. It allowed the Lions to dictate the pace of the game, the tempo of the game and, and the vibe of it and how it was played. And that's why they were able to stay within the number despite some some unfortunate turnovers there. Um maintaining possession of the ball 
it's just the best way to keep Patty on the sidelines, right? Keep him and Andy Reid talking over there. But it's also the best way to attack the weakness of the Chiefs. And the one thing that I have really thought that the Chiefs have improved on defensively is their pass defense. And I'm I'm really starting to have some hope for this defense. And, and we kind of alluded to in the offseason, hey, just go from like putrid to bad and you might have a Super Bowl winner here. Right now, the Chiefs secondary is ninth in passing efficiency. And that's come against the third toughest schedule of pass offenses. And Morris Claiborne is now on his way back after serving the suspension. Not sure if he's going to play this week. If he does, you know, how many snaps is he going to get? I'm not really sure. But the point here is, again, you want to attack the KC defense up the middle with your ground attack because it's just I'm shocked at what KC's secondaries look like so far. Um, so that's key. When the Colts do pass, um, target the middle of the Chiefs defense, right? Get the ball to Ebron. Get the ball to Doyle. KC has given up a league-high 32 receptions to tight ends. We know their linebackers are a problem. That's the weakness of this defense. So attack that area of the field when you're passing with that short pass attack that Frank Wright likes to employ. So there is some hope here, I think, on this side of the ball for the Colts offense. Well, it's always interesting. We talk about Kansas City and their poorest run defense, knowing that they have such a high profile and prolific offense on the other side of the ball. If they play with a lead, you can see the anxiety start to get ratcheted up on their opponents because you have to play from behind. And as soon as you go down two scores, you abandon the run game and you can give up five and a half yards per carry. But if your pass defense gets you off the field, it puts you in a good spot. And you mentioned the Lions performance. Kansas City's defense was on the field for 77 snaps. It was Lions self-inflicted wounds that kept them from winning that game outright, but a contest that they were inside the number from start to finish. Uh, when we look at the Thursday night football game, Mr. Payne, it is an NFC West showdown between the Rams and the Seahawks. Uh, and we're looking at Seattle right now, a one and a half point favorite total on the game sits at 49 at Fox bet. And there's so many different ways we can go in this particular football game. Seattle, yes, I know what their record says, but the combined record of teams that they've beaten, one win, and that was the Pittsburgh Steelers knocking off the Cincinnati Bengals on Monday Night Football. We look at the Rams on the other side, this offensive line, a far cry from where it was last season, uh, giving up 55 points the most for that franchise in the Super Bowl era and their loss to Tampa. And you look at Pete Carroll, Seattle 17-2 and at home in primetime, 8-1 and in Thursday night games, one of the better coaches in the league for getting his team to play at its best when the lights are the brightest. Uh, what are some of the matchups that intrigue you in tonight's game? This is the the noise game here, right? The metrics, my eyes, my intuition tell me we're dealing with two teams not as good as the record indicates, probably not as good as our power numbers. I'm really fascinated to watch this one. I'm going to watch every single snap. It's like fast forward to 820 already for me. Um Let's start with the Rams offense, and it's something that we've been kind of hammering home. I feel like this is like the third or fourth time in five weeks we've broken the Rams games down. So, uh, you know, apologies to the loyal listeners here if this sounds a little bit repetitive, but the Rams offense, it, it's it's different on the road, specifically golf. You look at some of his his trending road metrics right now. Success rate dips 3%. Yards per pass attempt declines uh, precipitously, 2.4 yards. Passer rating dips 16 points. Explosiveness declines uh, significantly. So for me, that's something my eyes told me early on in the Carolina game. Now the metrics are confirming it. Even with the Tampa Bay data point, 
right? The Rams offense still doesn't have that same pop that we've seen the last few seasons with McVay's offense, 20th in overall explosiveness. Now, you look at the efficiency metrics, still top 10 um, in that regard. The Rams have faced the seventh toughest schedule of defenses, but just, you know, something's missing. And, you know, credit to you, you kind of put me onto this before the show, and I just had a chance to, to look it up and dig it up. I love McVay. The guy's, you know, the boy genius, the boy wonder, but his game plans, for whatever reason, haven't been overly successful either. I'm looking at this. The Rams have started extremely slow. 23% success rate in the first quarter on the ground. That's 31st in the league. 28th in passing success rate in the first quarter. Uh, not very good. So we need to see a little bit of a faster start here for the Rams. Take pressure off golf a little bit. And when I look at Seattle's defense... To me, below average metrically, 17th in overall efficiency, despite facing the fourth easiest schedule of offenses. And I mean, you look at who they've played so far, Todd, it's 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 Andy Dalton. It's Big Ben with a torn elbow ligament for a half. It's Mason Rudolph for a half. It's Teddy Bridgewater. It's Kyler Murray. This is a little bit of a different animal here. So again, it's like a lot of noise with these two teams. And I'm trying to figure out, I think we find out which one might be a little bit better than we think at this point. Um, Vital that this offensive line for the Rams comes together. It has been a weak point of the offensive unit. It's now a hostile environment to play in where communication's vital and you got two new guys on that line. Let's see if that has an impact here. But we know golf is a different human when the pressure's on. And so far this season, golf's been pressured on 43% of his snaps. Last year, just 25%. And that's partly why he struggled a little bit this year. One thing on this Rams offense before we kind of look at the Seahawks offense and their ability to have some success or maybe not have success against the Rams defense, what do you make of this revolving door in the backfield for Sean McVay? We know about the weird circumstances with Todd Gurley and his usage late in the last season, the arthritic knee condition. Last week's game dictated that he couldn't really run the football, had a career low, five carries, not getting the ball early in contest. We saw a lot of Malcolm Brown out of the gate. We still haven't seen the rookie and Daryl Henderson get a substantial workload. Uh, What's going on with the Rams? Do you think it's McVay just trying to figure out how he wants to operate this offense? Or is there something more to be concerned about the Rams' ability to run the ball knowing everything they do in the passing game comes off of the run and play action? Good question. I think you're getting me to speculate here. And let me just kind of say I don't believe Gurley's 100% healthy. So that's why we are seeing a revolving door running back, right? I think it's clear and obvious when you start to paint by numbers, when you go out and draft a running back in the third round after signing Gurley to this mega deal, that something is wrong. Whether he's on the injury report or not, he's not himself. And I think you asked this question, what does it look like on a short week? Okay. So I'm not sure we see a boatload of Gurley tonight on this short week. And so all season long, I think you're going to have this mix of Brown and Gurley. And if they start trusting Henderson and his pass protection, he's probably going to see the field a little bit more as well because he's probably the most explosive of the three backs right now. But again, short week, Gurley having issues. I I don't think that there is no, there's going to be a, a steady dose of one back in this game. 
Yeah, you have uh, you have a stable of guys. You try and put them out there in positions where they can have some success. So we'll see exactly how that works. Seattle, on the other hand, they have a talented quarterback in their own right in Russell Wilson, who leads the NFL in completion percentage at a shade less than 73%, completed more than 70% of his passes in three or four games, and trails only Patrick Mahomes as far as passer rating is concerned right now. Chris Carson, for me, Payne, hasn't shown that same burst, that same explosiveness that made him such a, a beast to take down last season. Uh, but what do we make of this Seattle offense? We know Tyler Lockett has emerged as the bona fide number one. Will Disley had a good game last weekend against the Cardinals. But what can they do against this Rams defense? He's uh, he's a little a little dinged up. Um, it, it's this time of the season, man. And this is where it's just really important to start, start following these injuries. I know the numbers look okay, but yeah. Uh, Carson's a little banged up. It's a rough week, short week. So when I look at this game against Arizona... Brian Schottenheimer was significantly better in what he chose to do. A lot of early down passing. In total, he hasn't had great scripts, great game plans, and it's something to watch for tonight as well. Um, In the first quarter of this season, 33% of Seattle's runs have graded successful. That's 13% below league average. In the first quarter, 40% of Seattle's passes have graded successful. That's 10% below league average. And so again, like like Seattle's offense really hasn't faced this gauntlet of defenses either. Fourth easiest schedule of defenses so far. Um, I don't know what's going to change here. I'm interested to see what Schottenheimer does. The game plan he comes up with, it was much better against Arizona last week. Hasn't been good overall this season. And so, you know, for me, not sure what we're going to see. The competition faced also hasn't been great. The offensive line has been a little bit better, right? They've only allowed a 34% pressure rate on Russell Wilson. This is going to be a tick up for this offensive line going against a Rams defensive line that continues to get pressure. Um, That is the matchup here. Can the Rams continue to get pressure? If they do, I think it's going to probably be, uh, you know, beneficial here. The one thing that I have looked at in the Rams defense has been very good. And And I know people probably laugh after last week's data point, but even with that Tampa game in, and it was a sleepy spot, man. They've been traveling back and forth east to west coast multiple times over the last few weeks. You're staring down a primetime game on Thursday night. It was one where you can kind of let it get away from you a little bit, and that seemed to be the case. But even with that data point in, uh, top 11 in both rushing and passing success rate defense for the Rams. Number one in explosive pass defense, so they're not letting big plays get behind them. That's really where you see Russell Wilson improvising and finding guys deep down the field. If the Rams can cut that off and they can continue to shut down this ground game, I think the defense is going to have success on this side of the ball. I'm just really intrigued to see if Brian Schottenheimer kind of the game plan he used last week, if it continues to leak over into this week. You would hope that's the case. You just don't know if he's going to fall back into old bad habits, but we'll see. It makes this game a little unpredictable, but what we've seen so far, and I I, I hate to bring this up, but the market has certainly, and it hasn't been the case with first half totals to this point in our, our market history, but Seeing a 49 and a half in a 23 and a half first half is certainly uh, new to me with all the data that we've been tracking. Uh, it, it really kind of tips the hand here on on where professional betters and on where some of the sharpest odds makers believe uh, there's there's value here in this game.
Too many people listening to this podcast, Payne. There you go. Both sides of the counter at that. But yeah, you're spot on. I mean, talking about this game and some of the intrigue here, two teams that I think a lot of people had pegged. Well, one, I should say, to win the division, obviously. I know the Seahawks took under money and substantial amounts uh, from professional bettors for their win total, but a chance to get a season-defining win here and maybe start to ask a lot more questions about the Rams, knowing that the 49ers lurk with a primetime game of their own on Monday Night Football and a chance to remain unblemished there. Five big games in the books for NFL Week 5. I think it's Week 5. I can't even keep it's track anymore. NFL, NFL Week 5. But before we get out of Dodge, one final order of business. And I didn't give uh, ourselves credit at the top of the show. Carolina getting there outright, keeping up with a nice trend that we've been able to produce of dogs and or uh, friendly wagers, rocking chair, so to speak, in the National Football League. Where are we going for investment opportunities this weekend? Todd, I got to tell you, you're a little uh, cranky when you don't sleep. You, you've, uh, I mean, you've alerted. I only hold on a second. I only sleep about five to six hours a night during football season, anyways. But when I cut that in half down to three, yeah, I get to be a little bit edgy. There'll be a couple of coffees today, a couple of five-hour energies, maybe a Red Bull in the mix. Heart rate might get up to about a buck seventy-five by the time I finish up obligations. But yeah, a little bit on edge. You, you, you took a shot at a bookmaker too. Yeah, forgot to brag about last week's winner, which I don't really a fan of doing. I mean, you're 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 firing, anyways. We don't really brag. We just like to, hey, we own our losses and we own yeah, our wins. We're very transparent on this fine podcast. What's, what's the our line? listeners, I think, have come to appreciate us what's on this. What's the line? Say say nothing when you win, say little when you lose. What's, is, that, is that how it goes? No, say say nothing. I don't Man. know. I'm going to have to look for it. You figure, yeah, you're figure you're supposed to be the be- educated, yeah, I'm, smart I'm, guy in this podcast. I'm, lo- I'm losing it right okay. now. Okay. All right. Let's go with uh, four six five. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers plus three and a half. Yes, we have missed a little value in this number. Um, it's just the way the market is in 2019. Uh, I've been kind of hammering this point home for the last two years. The nickel better, the dime better, the guy who does not have to worry about limits has changed this market completely because he can go Sunday night and Monday morning with openers. Unfortunately, that's not the case for a lot of uh, high-end pro bettors that are trying to move thousands of dollars on these games. You have to wait for the limits to open up. So I still find value at three and a half here on Tampa. And I think it becomes a great matchup stylistically, right? We know what Teddy Bridgewater is at this point. The way you have to beat Tampa is through the air. Tampa's defense right now across the board in terms of stopping the run is the best in football, right? When you kind of use a collection of efficiency, success rate, stuff rate, uh, negative plays, Tampa's defense stopping the run has been out of this world good. Casey Rogers, who I've been like praising for years, might be the only D-line coach we talk about ad nauseum, has been fantastic for Todd Bowles. So I think the situation here where some people might say, hey, coming off a big Rams win could be a letdown. That's not going to be the case here in my mind at two and two with a big division game. Uh, This is a team here that I think smelling a little bit of blood. And I ask you this, Todd, to kind of throw it back. While there isn't great value in the number, right, stylistically, situationally, uh, metrically, matchup wise, I really like Tampa. But what would this number be if Tampa's 4-0? And the reality is... They've lost two games, one on a missed field goal from like 35 yards, and they lost the opener to the 3-0 and 
San Francisco 49ers because of two defensive pick sixes, right? They could easily be 4-0 here. And you look at New Orleans on the other side, certainly 3-1, and and I think that's why we're getting some of this value. And you hate to like pinpoint a play here or play there and this meet, but you could say with about a handful of plays, the Saints are 0-4 instead of 3-1, and right? Drew Brees' opening game marches them down to, to you know, pick up a victory 30-28 to against Houston. They're trailing in that game as a seven-point home favorite. So below expectation result there. You know, even you get the big win in Seattle. And we were on New Orleans in the first half in that game. And I can tell you, if there isn't a special team score and a defensive touchdown, that game looks a little different. If you said, and I know a lot of pros got to the window last week with New Orleans, but if you said, hey, they're not going to score a touchdown in this game, what do you think that result's going to be? So while there isn't great value in this number, if we were looking at Tampa Bay 4-0 and New Orleans 0-4, which is a real possible scenario here if we played things out, this number's a pick em. So I just still think there's value in Tampa at 3.5, and, and, and that's what we're going to go with for the best bet. Tampa Bay Bucks get on the Bulls bandwagon, baby. No risk it, no biscuit. And by the way, for the record, the uh, quote, and uh, I assume it's right because Google's never wrong, comes from Paul Brown. It's when you win, say nothing. When you lose, say less. Does that sound right to you? Gotcha. So you didn't adhere to Paul Brown. I don't adhere to a lot of things these days, Payne. <laughs> I don't adhere to a lot of things these days. Hey, but you know what? We're under an hour for the show, so we're going to close up shop and make sure that uh, we can execute on that. People told us our salutations were rushed before to get under that number, so we're not going to rush them this week. So you got any final words of advice or wisdom? You got about 12 seconds. That's it. Go to iTunes, five-star review, because next Thursday on this exact podcast, we'll We'll uh, have an iTunes contest winner, which means a Bet the Board swag pack. So gear, t-shirt, Visa gift card, get in your five-star iTunes review, leave a nice little comment. If you do, you're automatically entered to win this uh, Bet the Board swag pack, which we will announce on the NFL Week 6 podcast next Thursday. Let's go, Bucks! Enjoy all of your NFL and college football this fine weekend. And come Sunday afternoon, wearing pewter, and I don't even know what the hell their other color is. We'll see you at the window. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.